Well, hello. Uh, welcome to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. Um, so we are currently looking at uh, Lovecraft's letters, um, specifically the third volume of the selected letters. And uh, within that, the letters he wrote between March and August. So this is part of a longer series where I'm going to go through the entire third volume of collected works. And then we're going to jump to look at some poetry and then um, and see where it goes. We'll... I think there's some other nonfiction writing that might turn up. Um, you know, there's going to be a few holes in this podcast. I'm going to try to be as complete as I can possibly be, but um, there are some gaps that are going to be inevitable. But I, I think it just doesn't matter because I'm a bit repetitive already on some of this Lovecraft, um, you know, certainly unique writer, but often uh, covers the same ground, especially in the letters. So, so I think I'll be fine. Um, as long as I make a valiant effort to be as complete as possible. So anyways, in this section, again, it's, uh, it's what is it, six months or so? So the big news here, I think, is Lovecraft's trip to the South. Um, he, in the summer of, of, of 1930, he went to Charleston and Richmond and spent some time in Virginia and then spent some time in New York and visited there, and then returned home to Providence. So that's the big, I guess, event. Um, as far as writing, there's not too much conversation about his writing in this section. I, I, I have to line up this with his publications. I'm not sure he wrote that much during this period anyways. Um, he had just finished The Mound, and we talked about that in the last episode. Um, now it's, I think there's not as, there's not like as many in this section of the selected letters anyways, like really decisive letters, like great letters, like that Woodbourne Harris letter we looked at last time, nothing quite that big thematically, you know, it's a little bit more disper dispersed in this period. In fact, we have more correspondence than we did in the previous, uh, few episodes as well. Um, but anyways, um, as last time I'll look at it by correspondent. And in this case, this time we got nine, nine different correspondents in um, in uh, 20 letters. So uh, now most of these, about half of them are, are to Elizabeth Tolbridge and James Ferdinand Morton, two people he's been writing a lot in this period of time. Um, but we also have two uh, to Clark Ashton Smith, one to Frank Belknap Long, who he wrote a lot of letters to, but we haven't looked at him in the last two episodes um, it's a nice, interesting letter. We got three to Maurice Moe, um, his old friend. We have uh, one to August Derleth, one to his aunt, F.C. Clark, uh, which is about his trip in part, but also about Hart Crane, I, a poet I don't know that much about, but um, influenced Lovecraft to a certain degree. Uh, we have one to Alfred Galpin, um, who I didn't actually fully look up. I think we did come across him before in the second volume of the selected letters. Um, and then Robert E. Howard, we have one. Now, the Robert E. Howard letter, I'll, I'll mention sort of what's in it, but it's a, a bridge version of the letter. Um, we're going to take a look at that whole letter when uh, a little bit later in the series, I'm going to come back and we're going to look at all the Robert E. Howard letters to Lovecraft and the ones Lovecraft wrote to Robert E. Howard, at least the ones that have survived. And that's a two-volume book, and that's kind of one way we'll... I think we'll end the series on that, because that, that correspondence went right up to the end of... Of course, the end of Howard's life, but Lovecraft only survived it. Howard by like a year or so. 
So that may be one of the last things we do in this this podcast after we, we get through the story. So I won't say too much about it, but it is probably the, the most interesting thematically of the letters in this section. All right, so let's let's get into it. All right, so we'll start to the two to Clark Ashton Smith. Uh, the first one is February 27th, 1930. Um and this one is just a, a thank you note because apparently Smith sent him some dinosaur bones. It's, I don't know if it was part of an artwork or part of something else he was working on. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, but Smith was, uh, you know, they were often sharing work, uh, in these two friends. They never met in person, but they often shared work and uh, promoted each other's works heavily and, and deeply influenced each other. Um, but here he got some dinosaur bones as a gift. And so actually both these letters... Um, are about dinosaurs. Um, so he's thanking them for them. And then it, it allows Lovecraft to meditate on deep history, right? The same way landscape, and especially in these letters, like there's so much on the landscape because he goes to south. He goes to the south and he kind of gets a new appreciation for some different landscapes that he hasn't seen before. And, and this always awakens in him this deep kind of, uh, what do I want to say, a deep... Um, he, he, he's got this deep belief that, that somehow artistic and uh, creativity, culture, language, all that is really tied to place, right? And so by going to the South, he's able to kind of touch into that a little bit. And he, he really enjoyed it. Um, it's, an, you know, it's around this time, I think, that he wrote Medusa's Coil, which is set in the South. He wrote that as a revision for Zelia Reed Bishop. Do we have... We have nothing, no letter to her in this, this section of the, of the, the section of the, of the selected letters. All right. Um, so anyways, uh, now one thing that Lovecraft does here is he kind of plays around with these dinosaur bones as like bones of the elder ones and the old, old ancient gods and all that, because it is that deep time, which he's so interested in. And this is around the time he's conceiving of at the moments of madness so this idea that there's this hidden history of Earth uh, that <clears throat> really is is kind of buried and, and underground, and you know, and like a lot of like his timeline he creates for this goes back to like when dinosaurs, so the elder things, and you know, would have lived around the same time as the dinosaurs. So he he kind of thinks about that a little bit. Now the next letter to Clark Ashton Smith is March 1930. I don't know the exact date, but it's also about dinosaur bones and it talks a little bit more about it but and how they inspired his imagination so both of these are about inspiration and antiquity which is a very very old theme we've seen it again and again uh where he's kind of telling people and playing with the idea of like what makes you know what inspires me as a writer and for him it's like english culture the 18th century the romans the the sea seaport towns, the landscape of New England, you know, that's kind of where his intellectual kind of landscape is. But new landscapes allow him to kind of, you know, expand his imagination uh, in ways. That's why one of the reasons I think the revisions are so actually important is because they, they force Lovecraft to expand his imagination away from where he's comfortable uh, writing. All right, so that's all we got to Clark Ashton Smith this go around. Um, so next we have Elizabeth Tolbridge, the, the poet. Um, been writing to her quite a lot lately. Um, these are all pretty much about poetry. 
modern poetry. Um, a little bit, some related issues. There's, she, he writes one letter where he talks mostly about his trip to the South. Um, but really, it's about kind of poetry and modernism. is something he really uh, is, is on his mind quite a lot here. So in the first letter we have, uh, which is dated March 10th, he actually gets into uh, something I've never seen him talk about before, and that is kind of the beauty of place names. Um, he talks about the beauty of landscapes, but he rarely talks about the beauty of place names. He kind of is a little bit backhanded, once again, towards New York City, because he says, like, oh, New York, they just number their streets, and that's a bit, you know, not very creative or offensive. You know, it's a bit weak to do that, but he finds there's more beauty in, like, the classical street names and the names of buildings and the names of neighborhoods and all that. So he kind of meditates on that and, and how he kind of regrets there's not more use of, of place names in writing. Um, he talks a little bit about how with spring coming, he's going on new walking expeditions, which he loves to do. Um, but kind of the heart here is, is he gets to, uh, he actually talks about a lot of different things in this particular letter. Um, he goes on a little bit about American ethnography or ethnology, which is something he's talked to others about. I think he had a letter to Maurice Moe right before this where he talked about like the peopling of, of America and the ancient history there um, of in, in the Americas. Let me give you a little passage of what he's sort of talking about. He writes, for instance, the idea that Washington was once an Indian manufacturing center is highly interesting. Indeed, there's much material for absorbing speculations in the whole pre-European ethnology of America. Rhode Island undoubtedly has a long and colorful Indian history, for the artifacts or ceremonial rocks are of at least one unknown pre-Algonquin race are discernible in several localities. They call it the Red Pottery Race after its characteristic product. Um, and then he goes on and talks about Egyptians too and Egyptian antiquities and how both these cultures can go back that, that far. So he's, you know, you know, I was always deeply interested in, in kind of primordial cultures and in, in deep, in, in deep history as a, as a place to mine for story ideas. Um, now he does also, uh, get into a little bit of, of criticism here where he talks about like the evil poets and, and he, mentions epic literature which he has problems about he thinks it's too sentimental um it's he's kind of always down on the victorians and he thinks the victorians kind of went too far towards this kind of sentimental um history quote it's the chief fault is with the victorian con of the original bunk rather than with the modern truth seekers who have a thankless task of exposing and destroying it um, and then he mentions, I think she must have made a comment about evil poets and Lovecraft says, well, there's not really evil poets, you know, there's not good or evil in art. There's just uh, taste. And that's a thing that comes back. He comes back a lot to that to, in Tollbridge, letters to Tollbridge, where he's saying really what matters in art is, is what people dig. And I dig this and you might dig something else and that's fine. But, you know, there's really not a standard that we can get anymore if there ever was and I, I think in the past he might have said there was a standard maybe in the 18th century but now there's not we're in this chaos of modernism and so all that's really left is personal taste now he does think there are some responses to art that are kind of elevated more than others right like based on a, a kind of a higher order thinking but at the end of the day he's not really as judgmental as, as I think some people make him out to be so anyways, it's kind of kind of a good letter. Uh, next, 
Also to Tollbridge, uh, we got, uh, this is April 1, April 1, 1930, where uh, he kind of carries on his criticism of Victorianism, so, um, which he loves to do. But he talks about the, 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 now this gets to some of the things he mentioned in the previous letters we're looking at, like the one to Maurice Moe and the one to Harris, where he talks about kind of sexuality and modern sexuality. And he mentions Freud here, as Freud kind of a you know impacting the concept of love or weakening the concept of love and then the question is what does art do can like should art hold on to these romantic or victorian concepts about what love is when the science and the social science and the psychology is kind of disproving some of that stuff so i i think part of his criticism of victorianism is it's just like not fitting with the science of the time yeah, you know, above and beyond the sentiment. I mean, that's the big problem he has with it, this this kind of sentimentalism of it. The medieval Victorians way of handling love. Again, he says, yeah, I prefer the 18th century style of, of, of how love is handled in art. Um, so, whatever. It's kind of an old theme. He gets a little bit, little bit into... Uh, uh, space and inspiration um, and a lot of other you know ways he gets inspired in geographies and then the the the, art, the letter kind of finishes up with some ideas of topics for poetry that he's kind of sharing with with Tolbridge so it's a it's a pretty good letter at reflecting I, I think you know it's just another piece of evidence in his kind of hatred of Victorianism, but it comes at it in a slightly different way. It doesn't just talk about the sentimentality of it, but also kind of how there becomes a disconnect between the, the realities of, of like Freudian psychology and the new concept of love that are being determined by science and, and what exists kind of in people's romantic imaginations. All right. Uh, so next we have... Uh, April 24th, 1930, to Elizabeth Tolbridge, um, where he, he starts out here going, ranting about uh, bad bad taste in, in architecture. So it's kind of fun. It's like, it's, he doesn't he doesn't like the Victorians, but he doesn't really like the modernists either. So I, I think that's why he, he really has to go all the way back to the 18th century. Um, and he doesn't think much of, of modernist architecture at all. I'm saying, if I can find it. Now, he says there's some good architecture in America. He likes the kind of like the Gothic Revival stuff. He mentions the Cathedral of St. John the Divine. Um, he says, the trouble is that many builders, especially in the Victorian age, have not confined their use of traditional design to its current traditional functions and proportions. He's actually sort of accepting a modernist idea about architecture, right? Form following function. Um, but here's where he gets... He, to the stuff he really doesn't like. Quote, even the modern packing box architecture is better than ornament of a tawdry out of place, excessive or misproportioned sort. Washington on the whole has been very fortunate architecturally. Neoclassical 18th century, right? Most of the northern cities have 10 times as much structural ugliness cluttering up their streets. Downtown Boston being an especially depressing example. New York until about 1910 to 20 was a hideous nightmare, but now skyscrapers have saved it by giving it at a distance, an exotic and fairy-like appearance. So there's, a, there's some thoughts here about architecture, right? 
I think he's, you know, he uses this. Maybe I'm, I'm t- I was thinking too much of this uh, modern packing box architecture because he later on sort of praises it in in a really weird way. Like it's, it creates this like fairy tale environment. He's thinking about the skyscrapers there, which, I, you know, I've never heard anyone say that before. But anyways, um, he suggests some reading material here. Uh, he talks a little bit more of the disgust of romance, but largely it's about art and beauty. So again, this theme is coming up a lot in these letters is, is what is beautiful? What is good art? You know, how do we engage with modernism or the Victorian age? The bur- like We're like between those two behemoths, right? The modernism of, of like Joyce and the Victorians, both of which Lovecraft's not a big fan of. Um, he doesn't write her, at least we don't have an, uh, an example of a letter he writes to her for another month, June 5th, 1930, which is all about his trip to the South. And he spends a lot of time praising what he saw in his travels to the South. He really um, quite enjoyed it. In fact, there's not that many letters in, in May at all um, to, to, to pretty much anyone. Um, just a few. Um, but yeah, he, you know, he talks about the future of poetry, but mostly about his time in New York, Charleston, and Richmond. And I'll just give you one section of where he really is like liking what he sees here. He says, Charleston not only equaled, but surpassed my brightest expectations. It's a marvelous 18th century survival and probably preserves more of the colonial architecture and spirit than any other place in the United States. The climate is ideal. I would move there for good in a moment if my attachment to Rhode Island was less strong. Houses date from 1730 to about 1810 in the old sections below Broad Street include many types unknown in the north, uh, end quote. And there are these different folkways of architecture, right? There's that kind of Tidewater style and the Mid-Atlantic style and the the New England style. Um, So he would have been right about that. Maybe it would have been more more aware of that because there were more regional styles now. I think it's all becoming kind of a soup now. Um, Maybe there's still certain styles you can identify but kind of the way building goes i I think people build not so much thinking about the style of the region right but in those days maybe still still the case so he's got a lot of praise for charleston he does the same thing for richmond um and then uh the last one he writes to her in this period is uh july 3rd and this one is about about modern poetry it's a short. It's a short note. In fact, I think this one's not edited at all. It's just a less than a page, and he just deals with uh, symbolism in modern poetry. Um, and he makes one point that like art poetry shouldn't all just be the reflection of the artist, but how can the artist kind of break free and empathize and understand the rest of the world? And he thinks observation can get there so he writes excessive simplicity of outlook is of course an obstacle but it's something that can be generally surmounted it is not necessary to depend wholly on one's own moods for material since observation psychological study tell much of the typical moods and emotion nuances of others and of the part of these things playing the collective life of the existing civilization's mainstream um so that's how the letter ends and, and that kind of fits to lovecraft's overall view that there is kind of a heartbeat of the civilization uh out there and you can kind of uh, catch hold of it 
So this set of letters to her, pretty much about poetry in the, in the main, but a few other issues come up, but, but mostly about that. Um, then we have five interesting letters to James Ferdinand Morton. I'm finding like these correspondents are, are some of the most interesting because Morton seems to really be challenging Lovecraft and, and forcing him to talk about things that, you know, or taking stands on, on issues like, like uh, you know, more political, right? Um, and he, he is the main person he's talking to about politics in this period, of, you know, again, according to the selections we have here in these letters. Uh, now, Robert E. Howard's going to take that over. Robert E. Howard's going to really engage in him with political conversations. But anyways, uh, the first of these is March 12th. Um, oh, yeah, this is a good one. This is actually a theme that runs throughout this these five letters off and on, uh, and that is machine time. So he, he's going and he's having this back and forth conversation with Morton where Morton's talking about how hard he's working and how he's kind of, you know, I'm not quite sure because we don't have that other side of the letter. But he, he seems to be saying how hard he's working and how diligent he's being. And Lovecraft is saying, really, you know, I can't, I don't want to be like married to the clock. I don't want to have a nine to five job. I can't do that. And he basically says that the you know, like machine time is going to kill us. It's, it's really, really bad for us. Right. And he says New York maybe is more a place for this machine time, but not up here in Providence and not for me personally. So this begins a conversation which goes back and forth a little bit in here um, where he, he Lovecraft even later on kind of coins this term clock slavery, which is great. Uh, you know, the reason I'm interested in this is because, you know, an article that really influenced me, uh, you know, 15, 20 years ago was like E.P. Thompson's essay on clock time, right? Or Herbert Gutman's essays about labor and, and time and, and that kind of transition from agricultural time to industrial time. Or David Montgomery's work. So some of these like early new labor historians. So early new, what do I mean by that? So it's like that first generation of kind of new labor history that emerged in the 60s, you know, around E.P. Thompson in England and Herbert Gutman in the U.S. But they were all, all they were both interested in time and in this kind of cultural transition of, of, of working class people's uh, attitudes, right? And, and Lovecraft here is saying, yeah, the clock's bad, which of course is a criticism of many people on the left, right? So it's, it's kind of a interesting because, you know, you'd maybe that'd be a common ground between Morton, who's a leftist and anarchist, and and Lovecraft. But Morton seems much more, for at least from what Lovecraft writes, it seems Morton is the one who's locked, chained to the desk a little bit. So he talks about that in this letter. He also goes on a little bit about the absence of objective values in art. So th those are two themes that kind of fold together in these in these these five letters is kind of leisure and the clock on the one hand and on the other hand objective values in art um, and we've seen him talk about this with other people as well he says only sensations exist really and so good art and this is where he does make a judgment about art to a degree i mean ultimately he thinks you know you like what you like but he does say like sensations art that lifts us up to those sensations like and right ra raises us up emotionally in in terms of actually making us feel something is is better um and then uh he goes on about a little bit more about new york as a strange place which he 
he tends to do. Um, you know, of course, Morton, Morton's living in New York, so it's it's a excuse for him to complain about New York every once in a while. Now, it's interesting. He goes back to New York in the summer of, of 1930. All right, next uh, April 1st, 1930, another letter to Morton. Yeah, um, this one is about. Um, oh, so this is interesting. So he says we got this limited planet. And we really are limited in, in to the degree of wonder we can have. Wonder is, there's more potential for wonder in the greater universe. But it doesn't think most people really can handle it or, or can stomach that understanding of the broader universe. But he still says, you know, basically this planet gets a little mundane and banal after a while. That's why Lovecraft has to go to the deep history or the primordial cultures or, in, you know, go to the cosmic horror. He, he finds it's kind of limiting. Um, in, in, and then he's got this, he, it is kind of a classist argument that he keeps coming back to, but it's like, oh, there's those people, right, who just fill in this lack of meaning with religion. There's people who just kind of become vulgar and, and lose any respectability. I'm not like that. But none, this is what's interesting here about this, is he recommends a book by this guy, Joseph Wood Crutch. Um, and he actually mentioned this, I think, to uh, maybe Belknap Long. He mentions maybe, maybe it's in this letter we'll look at a little bit. Or maybe it was to Maurice Moe. I forget which one. But he mentions to one of these people that, you know, I, they're about this lecture that this guy Crutch gave. And so he wrote this book at the same time. It was published in 1929 called The Modern Temper, um, which seems to be about poetry. And, and he wrote about Poe to some degree because he's thinking about Poe a lot. He's writing about Poe to Tolbridge at this time. So this is the kind of a thing we should read, it seems to me. It, it, he mentioned it several times. So he was really influenced by it in the summer of 1930, spring and summer of 1930. Um, so he thinks this book, like he's, like, he's like, if you read this book, you'll understand what I'm saying here about, you know, the, the lack of meaning, objective meaning in the world. And so it's basically all we can do is take reality as it is. So this is a kind of a, a nice sharp letter, I think. Um, then we have another one a couple weeks later, uh, April 16th, which gets just to uh, the inability to understand the cosmos. This kind of fills in a bit what he was saying about last time. You know, the cosmos simply can't be understood. Religion can't navigate that and make up for that in any, in any meaningful way. So, um, so it's on May 15th that he writes about his southern trip to his friend Morton, um, basically writing about a Mayop, a May, Maymont in Richmond. Maymont's like, a, like an old plantation or, or something, or a park that's been turned into a park or something. I think it's a historical site now. Anyways, it's in Richmond, so it's not, don't, you know, it's not a city that he went to. It's, it's part of his trip to Richmond that he was on. And uh, he goes on. It's a very similar to another letter he writes to Alfred Galpin around the same time, on the same day, literally. So he, he kind of copies the same sentiments of, about the beauty of, of Richmond and the setting. It's just the difference is he talks more directly about Richmond to this Galpin. He talks more um, about Maimon to, to Morton, but more or less the same awe and uh, desire to know more about these landscapes. Um, then we have June 19th, where he returns to the theme of 
of clock time. And here's where he invents this term, clock slavery. So he kind of scolds Morton playfully for working too hard and says, like, you are really, you've fallen for this clock slavery. So I like that he coined this term. And he says, we basically need leisure. We're too bound by the clock. And this is part of this machine culture, and it's it's eradicating culture. And, and, and I think this is a good idea. I, I think this is one thing I do kind of agree with Lovecraft about is, I think we all do need to slow down, right? It's a problem in academia, right? Where you got to be productive. You got to, you know, it's publish or perish, right? So you get a lot of publications that are decent. They're fine, but maybe they, they weren't the heart and soul of the writer, right? They were just written for the job or for the career. And I'd rather have works that really comes from somewhere special in people. And you can re- when you read works, you can tell, right? I just read this uh, Red Plenty by Francis Spofford. And that's a book that's really, really, you know, you feel the emotional connection between the, the writer and his work. Um, but if we're all kind of bound to the clock and, and feel that clock ticking constantly and we, we do work, that's not as good, right? I think that's really important in art. So, yeah. And then, you know, if to the degree we are getting towards some degree of post-scarcity to some degree of automation... You know, we need to redeem leisure. That's, that's uh, something I really believe strongly. Um, he thinks there's limits intellectually of a complex civilization. Whatever limits there may not be in terms of prosperity and wealth and, and all that kind of stuff, there are limits in terms of, of, of people's mind and people's uh, creativity and imagination. All right. So that's that. So I really like these, 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 these letters to Morton. I think they're the highlights of it, with the exception of the Howard letter. The letters to Howard are always wonderful. Um, then we have one to uh, one letter to Frank Belknap Long. Uh, those are usually good letters too, but we haven't seen one in a while. We've, we've this is our third episode going through the third volume of the Selected Letters, and this is the first one we have to him. Um, but it's a good one, I think. He talks about a lot of different things. He talks about. Poe, yeah, here's where he mentions the um, Crunch's lecture. Quote, speaking of Poe, I heard Crunch's lecture upon him on the 5th of March, though the speaker didn't say anything not contained in his book published in 26. Now, the book, The Modern Temper, I, I looked it up, it said 29. He says 26. So you've asked the typo, there's another book. Maybe it's maybe it's his book about Poe. I don't, I don't know. But... Um, so another reason I think maybe we should look 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 up this book, and uh, and think about it. Um, he mentions Woodburn Harris as well, uh, which is kind of funny. He says, "Quote: Our intellectual rustic friend Woodburn Harris has suddenly blossomed into a prolific professional client, being intent on saving the country by division and publishing ways and means to repeal the Eighteenth Amendment." Oh, why did I bring this up? It reminds me that I must type out twelve pages of the damn stuff before nightfall. So it seems he hired Lovecraft for some ghostwriting or revisions or something. Um, now, he mentions working on... Yeah, he was working on uh, Whisper in Darkness at this point, which will be the very next story we look at when I'm done with these letters and maybe some poems. He mentions My New Vermont Horror, which is the Whisper in Darkness. Now, the really, I guess, core importance of this letter comes in his conversation about... Native Americans as mariners. So uh, what I like about this is Lovecraft really does 
have this idea of this world connected by sea. It really comes up strongly in his stories, right? And you see it in the love of the port towns. It's also a source of a lot of horror because it's where immigrants come from, right? And this diversity and this kind of cultural corruption, right? But at the same time, the Anglo-American civilization is a maritime civilization. So he's very conflicted about it. This has been a major theme if you've been following this podcast from the beginning. Um, but then he kind of is talking about here as Indians as mariners, right? So Indians obviously came from Asia. He holds to that theory. But he, he has other theories that like maybe Indians were from the East Coast were Phoenicians, who mariners, right? Which I think is not off the wall. I mean, maybe it's off the wall, but it's not. It's not an unknown theory, right? LDS does don't they hold something similar? Like the Native Americans are like the lost tribe of Israel or something? Or oh, excuse me. Um, so that's a really fascinating idea that kind of cultures are spreading by seas um, way back which I think is true to a degree, right? It's, it comes up again in the Howard letters, too, and where one of their f- first conversations between Howard and Lovecraft are about, like, the peopling of the, of the Celtic lands. Uh, and are the Celts, like, products of mi- maritime migrations, or are they constantly settled there? And this becomes a, a beginning of a debate between the two. So, good letter. Um, then we have uh, three to Maurice Moe. Um, which it's a bit mixed, but it really comes down to technology and machine culture here. Um, The first March, 1930, he actually does a specific debate or specific discussion here about typewriters. And he makes an interesting point. And I think maybe computers solves this criticism, but I don't know. Maybe there's still an issue with this. And maybe people who actually study this and think about writing and the technology of writing have some ideas on this. But his complaint is basically typewriting is making writing worse because, you know, now what Lovecraft did is he would write by hand, right? And mark up the paper, cross out things and add things and whatever, and then type it up when he had to send it to the publishers. And he always complains about typing stuff. But he's saying when people just type, it's so burdensome to edit right like you know in the old days of typing like if you had to change a footnote you have to basically retype the whole chapter right um it, it was a disaster or if you had to ch- move a move an end note you had to like everything that came after it had to be rewritten right you have to retype constantly uh, to revise things perfectly right so also uh, in the computer age are very you know helped by this i guess but you know is there you know what impact does the medium by which we write have an effect on our our writing and he kind of says well typewriters are sort of bad but in a later letter on june 18th he he writes to mo's kind of get he, this kind of brings up a, a, this broader conversation he has about modernism the decline of, of kind of culture and the rise of this machine culture which I don't feel I really want to constantly repeat his argument every time unless it's, you know, a really keystone um, letter like the Woodburn Harris ones or, or some of the other really long ones. But it's on his mind all the time is this, you know, in the 30s, in the end of his life, Lovecraft was constantly anxious about this creeping machine culture. And he thought this was like basically a new, new modern barbarism. 
and he saw it happening. And so I think that conversation about typewriters got him back on this topic. Of course, there's a big gap between these two letters, the one in March and then in June. Between that, between those two, he wrote one in May 4th, which is about Charleston. So, you know, I think the editors here pick letters that let us kind of get a window into the whole trip. Like we've seen Richmond through the letter to Morton, and now we see Charleston through this letter to, to Maurice Moe. Um, and again, beautiful landscape, beautiful architecture, all the stuff that Lovecraft loves to talk about. All right. Next, we have a letter to August Durleth, April 9th, 1930. Uh, not too much to say about this. Basically, Durleth sent him a, a, a manuscript and Lovecraft praised it. Um, had a bunch of kind words to say about it and as well as some suggestions. So the book is The Early Years. Um, which I've never read. I don't know if that's the name it was originally published in. I never really read much of August Durleth's stuff. Um, but he says this is good, and here's some suggestions. So it's just basically him helping out August Durleth a little bit with his writing. Uh, then we have one to F.C. Clark. Now, F.C. Clark is someone he wrote a lot to. We saw a lot of letters to Clark when he was living in New York. It's because it's his aunt, so he's writing home, right? This is him writing home. And he's writing from New York when this letter um, was written. And mostly he talks about Hart Crane, who is a poet I don't really know too much about, unfortunately. But, you know, Lovecraft is interested in him. And he, and he kind of, gets, there's a connection to Hart Crane via, via his friend Loveman. So I'll just read this. He says, about eight o'clock, the bell rings, and there appeared that tragically drink-riddled but now eminent friend of Loveman's who I met in Cleveland in 1922 and once or twice later in New York, the poet Hart Crane, whose new book, The Bridge, has made him one of the most celebrated and talkative figures of contemporary American letters. So he meets, he meets Hart Crane, who is a New York resident. And the thing is, I haven't read Crane's stuff, but I think this is an important letter because he is... You know, mentioning this meeting they had, they had, and I think he's fairly famous. Like the Library of America published a volume of his poetry, and I haven't gotten around to reading it or thinking about it yet. But someday, someday I'm sure I'll get to it. Uh, in fact, I'm I'm hoping when I get back to Taiwan, I can have a job right away. And if it's a good enough job, I'm just going to take some of the money I made in China and just buy the whole Library of America. I've been kind of waiting too long to do that. I think it'll be, you know, if I use the used book market or just buy them direct i don't know but it's about time i just got the whole thing and started raiding through it you know expanding uh kind of expanding what i know about literature american writers which is what i'm trying to do here in this podcast right all right, we're almost done. Uh, we got one to Alfred Galpin. I forgot to look up who he is. He definitely wrote him before, though. Um, this is all about uh, the Southern trip, more about landscapes. It's kind of repetitive. It's very similar. This is the one he wrote on the same day he wrote the letter to Morton. So whatever. I'm not going to say much about it. Then we have this letter to Robert E. Howard. July 20th is the date. And it's, I think it's the, first, it's the first Robert E. Howard letter in the Selected Letters. I don't think it's the first overall that he wrote to him, and it's heavily edited. We, you know, we only get part of it. But this might be actually the most interesting thematically of all the letters in this whole section. Um, and that's just, it's just what 
what Howard brought out of Lovecraft. But again, I I want to go a little bit more detailed into these letters in uh, later on at the end of this whole series. So I'm not going to say too much about it. But this is a if you don't want to get like the means to freedom, and you have access to the selected letters, I think it's worth taking a look at this one because he talks about. archaeology and race and migration and cultures which is again how their conversation begins is talking about cultural mobility migrations in history right he says quote but where its artifacts are the earliest as in the british isles we may reasonably conclude that it was the first culture of any permanence in the given site and that its users were of the mediterranean race that evolved it i believe therefore It'll be difficult to prove that the British Isles had any civilized, half-civilized, or even advanced savage inhabitants prior to the coming of the dark Neolithic Mediterraneans. Now, he doesn't really have evidence of this. And this all gets into that early conversation between him and Howard and really about how static these cultures are. But, you know, what he gets into a little bit here is mythology which is great. He says, it's true that the Celts shared most vigorously the myth cycle of fairies, gnomes, and little people, which anthropologists all over Western Europe and um, attribute to vague memories of contact with the Mongolians, which was wholly prior to their invasion of Britain. Since these fair Nordic Celts found a smaller, darker race in Britain and Ireland, there's a tendency on this part of some to be misled and to assume that the little people legends allude to contact with these dark aborigines. This, however, can clearly be disproven by analysis of the myths, for such myths invariably share with the parallel continent of myths the specific features of having little people's essentially repulsive and monstrous subterranean and their habits of dwelling. So he kind of uh, says here that these stories themselves are not proof of some like primordial contact between Celts and, and you know, Asians, essentially, like Mongoloids, um, these darker-skinned people. And he, he kind of throws in Semites here and, and, and different different cultures. Um, but, you know, there's a, there's a lot here about myth and racial change and just race in general. So this is a really good uh, article kind of getting into some of his theories on, on race. Um, and obviously, at some point, people migrated to... to um, Britain. It's just that the debate between Howard and Lovecraft was about like how much migration shaped the culture over time, and how much the culture was kind of rooted to the landscape and the and the and the people. That's how I remember it. I, I'll go back and look at those letters in some more detail. But it's a good one. It's fun. So, I guess that's it for now. So, in the next section, we'll cover the letters from September to November. Um, so that's another 20 letters. No, August. We'll start in, we'll actually start in August till November or so, 1930. So I have to read through them first before I can tell you what's in, in them. But based on my previous notes, they look good. Looks like we'll have less to talk about. So anyways, this set of letters, not the most really exciting. There's no letter except for maybe the Howard one, but that's heavily edited. That really kind of blows you away the way like the Woodburn Harris letter did last time or blew me away. But still some interesting stuff there. I think this kind of dialogue about technology and clocks and typewriters is all kind of fascinating stuff. The back and forth about poetry I could do without, but you know, it's it's part of what's in Lovecraft's mind. So it's, 
important to think about. Um, but yeah, that's that's gonna be it for now. So um, let me know what you think of it, all this stuff, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.